This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary and the host of the Lead On podcast, where we address issues related to local church ministry leadership and ministry leadership in other organizations. Uh, today on the podcast, this is we're covering the second part of a two-part presentation on managing church conflict. In the first part of this presentation, uh, I covered a number of issues about myths related to church conflict, truths related to church conflict, and in the midst of all of that, considered some biblical examples of church conflict and what we can learn from them. So without rehashing all of that, uh, it's important to understand that uh, most church leaders and ministry leaders have some unrealistic expectations about conflict. We believe some things that just aren't true. That's why I call them myths about church conflict. And also, sometimes we fail to recognize the conflict stories that are contained in Scripture that are part of the revelation of what the church was like in the first century world. And, of course, by example, what churches will be like today. And so we have the potential of of, uh, learning from those examples some truths about church conflict, which I used to conclude the last presentation. Now, once we understand that we have to reject some myths, take a fresh look at Scripture, and then establish some truths based on what that record really teaches, we then can move to developing some what I call practical strategies for managing church conflict. I want to talk through those with you and help you understand how to put them into practice so that uh, your church can manage the conflict that it will eventually have. And when I say that, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but as I established in the first podcast on this subject, church conflict is uh, normal. It's to be anticipated. It's actually inevitable. And the more your church is growing, the more likely it is you're going to have some conflict. So with that in mind, let's talk about some strategies. Number one, anticipate conflict. It will happen eventually. Now, leaders cannot predict the future, but we are responsible to anticipate the future. And as we anticipate the future, we put things into place in our ministry settings that help to prepare us for things that we know are coming. We're just not sure when they're going to arrive. Now, why is it important to or how is it possible to anticipate conflict, and what can you practically do uh, to uh, implement this strategy? Well, first, teach your your church that conflict is inevitable. Now, there are several reasons for this. First, uh, your church members are redeemed sinners. Yes, they are redeemed, but they're still sinners. And because of that, there's going to be sinful behavior expressing itself in your church, and inevitably, that's going to result in some relational tension that can escalate into serious conflict. Another thing to teach your church is that uh, church leaders are also imperfect people. It's important to present an honest and frank appraisal of your church leadership and and to put into into place uh, supervisory structures, personnel policies, accountability uh, processes, so that church leaders, uh, so that churches understand that church leaders are imperfect and must be managed and must themselves have venues and, uh, and opportunities to resolve conflict as it arises. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the last podcast is that many times uh, church members make the mistake of thinking of their employees as church members first and church employees second. But in reality, 
uh, all church employees are church employees first, and then if they are members of the same church, church members second. And so employees will have uh, conflict, and they will have conflict in the context of their employment. They're imperfect people, and they need management. Uh, they need accountability. They need structure. They need policy, both to give them guidance and also to give them the vehicle or the venue or the means, if you will, of how to address conflict in the workplace. Because this is not just conflict in church, it's conflict in the workplace as well. So you teach your church that conflict is inevitable by reminding them that they are redeemed sinners and that because of that, relationships will occasionally be frayed. And that leaders are imperfect people and have to have a means by which they're managed and by which their own conflicts can also be addressed. Now, another reason that churches have conflict is that people in churches have varying levels of maturity. There are brand new Christians. There are very mature leaders. There are people who've been at the task for a long time and people are just getting started. There are also people who have varying levels of emotional maturity. Uh, there, are varying, there are varying levels of intellectual capability. There, there are just all kinds of diversities, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, uh, within congregations that lead to people having various ways of seeing certain situations, problems, or difficulties. And then another reason that you can teach is that Christians have differing opinions about many issues. It's possible uh, to have uh, two people that share uh, very similar tastes in worship but have very different perspectives on politics. It's possible for people that share very different pers- or very similar perspective on politics to have very different perspectives on what constitutes good preaching or good Bible teaching. And so when you start talking about how people see things like worship, Bible study, uh, even secular politics or how ministry is supposed to be organized or accomplished, uh, then you know you're going to have a lot of different opinions. And because of that, you're inevitably going to have conflict over those issues. And then another reason that you need to teach uh, people that causes to have that causes church conflict to be inevitable is that Christians sometimes project personal problems into church relationships. In other words, a person is struggling at work, they can't take their anger out on their boss because they feel threatened in that relationship, so they come to church and express that anger toward a pastor or toward a deacon or a Sunday school teacher who fails them in some smaller way. And we often look at that and wonder, what caused that blow up? Why, why so much anger over such a small offense? Well, it's because the person is projecting something that's happening away from church into church relationships where there's more safety for that kind of emotional expression. I've seen this in a, in, in a couple of significant ways, but one I'll just mention today. Uh, a few years ago, I was consulting with a denominational group about their vision for the future. Now, typically, Baptist denominational organizations focus on three things. They focus on leadership development, uh, church starting, and church strengthening. And while they may uh, say that in various different ways or put that together in different constellations, Uh, particularly Baptist conventions, tend to focus on those three things. Well, this particular convention had in its history a fourth focus, and that was that it strengthens families. Well, there's not anything wrong with strengthening families. Of course, that's a good thing. But the question is really, how can a Baptist denominational uh, convention accomplish that purpose? So it seemed a little puzzling to me that that was in the previous missions, uh, or excuse me, previous vision statement that they were seeking to revise. So I I found one of the old-time leaders that had been around a while, and I said, hey, I'm trying to do my research as I consult with you on this matter, and I'd like to know 
Uh, where'd that fourth aspect of your current vision come from? He said, oh, that's easy. He said, I was on the task force to put that together, actually. And I said, all right, what happened? He said, there was a pastor on that task force whose marriage was in trouble. And every time he came to every meeting, that's all he could talk about was how the church needed to, uh, the, the denomination needed to do everything it could to strengthen families. And uh, finally, we, we relented and added it in because who's against the family? But we really didn't know how the denomination could do that, but we, we put it in because he just kept insisting on it. And then about a year after the task force ended, uh, he and his wife filed for divorce. And that became very obvious to us then. What we didn't see at the time was that he was actually projecting his personal needs into the organizational planning model. Well, that's a pretty clear example I'm talking about. People bring things from outside their church relationship, and they project it into the church ministry setting, and it skews their judgment, or it shapes their planning, or it or shapes their responses, I should say, and, and it really causes uh, a sense of disjointedness and even conflict, wondering where is that coming from, and why is that person always emphasizing that one thing? So uh, you can anticipate conflict, and you can actually teach your church that conflict is inevitable for at least these reasons. One, they're redeemed sinners. Two, the leaders are imperfect people. Three, the people in the church have varying levels of maturity. And four, Christians have differing opinions about many issues. And some of those issues are not necessarily absolutes like the Bible is the word of God or Jesus is the only way of salvation. These things are uh, issues that do have differences of opinion that are legitimate like worship style, preaching style, uh, ministry organizational plans, and even secular things like politics. So people are just going to have different opinions and that's going to bring some conflict with it into the church setting. And then finally, uh, Christians do project their personal lives into church ministry leadership decisions. So if you, so you can anticipate conflict, first of all, by teaching your church that these realities exist and that we shouldn't be alarmed about them when they rise in our, in, in our presence. Now, I'm advocating that you teach on these issues to anticipate conflict in your setting, but let me also go on to say that the best time to teach about conflict is when there is no significant conflict happening. Now, one of the common mistakes pastors make is, address, is only speaking about conflict when a conflict is going on. So they wait till something's happening in the church, and then they try to address it in their blog or their church newsletter or in their Bible study or even in their preaching, and that becomes often simply gasoline added to the already burning fire. So when's the best time to teach about conflict? It's when there's no church conflict happening. And that means that you do your teaching ministry about conflict proactively, teaching about it when there's no significant conflict going on so that when conflict arises, you can look back and say, remember what we learned last year, or let's go back and review those message notes, or let's think about this Bible study that we did from this particular passage of Scripture. Let's go back and remember what we've learned and bring that to bear on the situation at hand. Now, how can you teach about conflict when there's no significant conflict happening in a natural or helpful way? Well, first... Study a conflict management tool with your leaders. There are good books that have been written on church conflict. There's videos that can be viewed. There's uh, consultants that can be brought in. Uh, bring that to bear at a time when your leadership team is unified, when there's no conflict in your church, and everyone may say, why are we studying this? Is something going on I don't know about? No, there's nothing going on. That's why we're studying it now. We're reading this book so that we can lay down a foundation when there's no conflict going on of how we're going to deal with it when it inevitably rises up in our church. 
Then, another way to do this is to preach on conflict when you encounter it in the Bible. If you're preaching um, expositionally uh, or expositorily through books of the Bible or even through sections of books on the Bible, if you're in the New Testament, you're going to find conflict between people and conflict within churches. When you get to those stories, don't gloss over them, skip over them, or spiritualize them, or, or, uh, or fail to to uh, preach the full depth and meaning of the conflict that took place. When you encounter conflict in the Bible, preach on it. And if you're preaching, like, for example, through New Testament books as a part of your preaching plan, you will eventually address conflict because it is in the New Testament. It's in those biblical records of the early church. And then a third thing you can do besides studying it with your leaders and preaching on it as you move through Scripture is to watch the horizon and minimize potential conflicts you see coming. This is part of a leader's responsibility for anticipating the future even though you're not able to predict it or control it. A few months ago, a vice president here at the seminary came to me with an idea. He said, we have a problem and here's a solution that I think will solve the problem. I listened to him and agreed that he had both diagnosed the problem and the solution accurately. I actually said, you're doing a great job finding this answer and and, and creating this solution, but before you do anything else, I want you to pick up the phone and call these three people because these are the three people who are going to be most directly impacted by your solution in what they may perceive to be a negative way. Now, you're a vice president. You don't call them and ask them if you can do this. You're going to need to get it implemented because it is the right decision. But you are a Christian leader who knows how to show deference and concern and uh, to work with people to implement change. And so call these three people, talk with them about the problem, tell them the solution you're going to implement, ask for their feedback, and ask them how this may impact them negatively and what you can do to assist them with that process. He did that. He came back to me a few days later and said, man, thanks for having me do that. I realize now that if I just announced this decision without talking with them personally, I would have gotten some really negative feedback. But because I talked to them individually, I was able to hear their concerns, talk with them about some solutions, and really at the end of those conversations, while they all, while they all weren't really happy with the decision, they understood it, they were willing to support it because they did see the value in it, even though it was going to create some difficulty for them. That's what I mean by, by anticipate conflict watching for it coming on the horizon, and minimizing it when you can. Again, I knew that these these decisions were going to cause conflict, and I knew even after these conversations there would still be some tension about the issue. But I knew we could minimize the conflict by just making some simple phone calls prior to the announcement. So the first step of managing conflict in churches is anticipate the conflict. It will happen eventually. Teach your church members and church leaders about conflict, about why it happens, and about why it's inevitable, and do that by studying conflict with uh, management tools with your leaders, by teaching on and preaching on conflict as you encounter it in Scripture, and by keeping your eye open for conflict, and by doing what you can to minimize it, even though you know you can't all, always eliminate it. Okay, a second strategy is to address conflict intentionally. When conflict happens, and it inevitably will, address it intentionally. Now, this means you have to be courageous. You have to step up and do your job walking into what may be a difficult or challenging or even uh, emotionally charged situation uh, to, to, to address and deal with the conflict. So here are some steps to addressing conflict intentionally. First, deal with the people involved 
directly. If two people in your church are having a conflict, ask them to both meet with you in the same room at the same time and work it out. If leaders are doing this, get the leaders together and have them work it out. While you may need to meet with each one individually beforehand, meet with them together and work the problem out. If you're having conflict with someone, don't go to a third party and try to work it out that way. Go directly to that person and try to and, and, and work it out face-to-face directly. Deal with the people involved directly. Second, approach the people in the right way at the right time. When people have spoken angry words in a meeting or there's been a blow-up in a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a classroom or in a ministry setting, chasing the person down on the parking lot may not be the right time or the right way to resolve the conflict. Give it a day. Give people time to recover emotionally, to recalibrate spiritually. Give them time to think a little bit about what they did or what they said. And then make an appointment. Uh, go to their home or their business place or a coffee shop or a public place where you know they can have a frank conversation with you. But approach people the right way at the right time when they're, in, when they're involved in conflict. A third uh, step to addressing conflict intentionally is discerning the genuine issues driving the conflict and working to resolve those. Sometimes uh, people react emotionally to something on the surface, but something deeper is really driving the conflict. Uh, For example, uh, a a church uh, youth minister resigned, and and, and one one, uh, set of parents reacted very negatively. They, they exploded, really, with uh, some accusations of abandonment and of, of, of lack of integrity and other things that were being spoken about this minister who was leaving, and really none of that was true, but that was their reaction. Uh, when, when we sat down with them and tried to discern what's really going on here, what we discovered was they had uh, a 12-year-old daughter who was just about to move into the youth ministry, and they were terrified of having their first teenager and of not knowing what that meant and of what that might mean as they lost relationship with their daughter or they feared losing that relationship. And this girl really looked up to the youth minister and talked often about her excitement about going into the youth ministry the following year. So the explosion in anger that was directed toward the youth minister really wasn't driven by his resignation, his lack of his abandonment, or his lack of integrity. What was really driving the conflict was a sense of panic among the parents parents about losing a spiritual guidance for their teenager and about perhaps losing a relationship with her as she moved into the teenage years or that she might fall away from the church because of not having a youth ministry that she really connected with. So when we got down to the real issues driving the conflict, they weren't all about the youth minister. They were really all about the people involved. Another way to address conflict is to facilitate honest dialogue and prayer about these genuine issues. Um, it's hard to get people to talk sometimes, but you have to stay with it to say, what's really going on here? Let's really be honest about how we're feeling. Let's talk about what this is doing to us, to our church, to our class, to our committee, to our deacon board, whatever it is. Let's talk about it honestly. And then, and I can't overemphasize this enough, then to pray honestly about the situation. Um, to get down on your knees and to hold hands with a person that's in conflict with you or two people who are in conflict with each other and cry out to God asking him to heal this relationship or heal this situation. When you get people honestly praying before each other and before God, he has a miraculous way of bringing resolution to conflict. And then finally, another way to step 
uh, to address conflict intentionally is to document the result, the agreed to results and future steps. Now, I've done this in a number of different ways. When I say document, I don't mean write a formal legal paper or get some attorney involved or anything like that. What I mean is uh, when I've helped two men work out a conflict in a church before, I've said, now, guys, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to shake hands on this, and we're going to remember this date. And any time this comes up again, I'm going to remind you guys, no, we shook hands on it. It's over. Conflict resolved. And we're not going back to this ever again. Another thing I've had people do is open their Bible. Say, open up your Bible on the inside cover. Write this date down and write this sentence. Today, I ended my conflict with, and I put the name there. I say, just document that you did this today. And any time this conflict comes back up or you start feeling it again, open your Bible and say, no, on this day, I ended this conflict with this person. It's over. When I say document, I mean do something like that. I mean create some kind of spiritual marker, drive down a stake, uh, you know, put a mark on a post, uh, whatever analogy you want to use, but do something that concretizes this decision to end this conflict. So some steps to addressing conflict intentionally. Deal with the people directly. Approach the people the right way at the right time. Try to discern the genuine issues driving the conflict. Facilitate honest dialogue and honest prayer, and then document it in some way with a handshake or a fly a flyleaf uh, Bible note, but something that says, this day, at this place, at this time, we put an end to this. Now let's move on, not look back anymore. Now there's some mistakes you have to avoid when you're trying to address conflict intentionally. First, don't ignore it. Uh, that's obvious. You can't ignore it if you're going to address it. Second, don't make it bigger than it is. Um, if two people have an argument, uh, just the two of them need to be involved in the resolution. You don't need to go to the deacons or the elders. You don't need to take it before the church. Um, if, a, if a conflict can be resolved in a very quiet, small way, resolve it there. That's all that needs to be done. And then whatever you do as a leader, don't speak or preach or blog or write on a conflict that's going on especially if uh, doing so will in any way bring attention to it that doesn't need to be added or will uh, add fuel to the flames of the conflict that's going on. Uh, most conflict does not need to be addressed publicly. Very rarely does that need to happen. Only when it happens among prominent leaders in a very public setting does it need to be dealt with that way. Most conflict needs to be resolved with the people involved in the context in which it happened in the smallest circle of influence possible so that it can be resolved, put aside, and everyone can move on. All right. A third strategy for resolving church conflict is to resolve the conflict appropriately, meaning you reach the best conclusion possible. Now, let me be clear about this. Resolving church conflict does not mean that you make everyone happy. It means that you reach the best conclusion possible. And the best conclusion possible means that everyone reaches a conclusion and agrees to be held accountable to that conclusion. Now, those, those conclusions may take uh, at least three, one of three forms. First, when a church conflict is resolved, the people involved may decide to stay together and work together. That's what we always hope for. But sometimes Christians may decide to separate permanently because of their conflict and work apart. This is what happened with John and uh, with uh, Paul and Barnabas over John Mark in Acts chapter 15. They split up the missionary team, but they did not stop being missionaries. They both chose new partners. Barnabas chose Mark, Paul chose Silas. And they both continued the work. Sometimes church conflict results in people separating from each other and joining new teams, but it never, ever should result in people quitting the church, meaning the big C, 
church, universal, are quitting the mission of God. They may change local churches. They can't leave the church. They may change mission teams, but they cannot leave the mission. So sometimes the best conclusion possible is to stay and work together. Sometimes the best conclusion possible is to separate and work apart. But listen, the third option is not really an option. Staying together and disrupting kingdom-focused work is not a biblical option. To stay together and continually fight, argue, or have turmoil is not a biblical option. If that's happening, something is seriously wrong in how this conflict is being resolved. So you want to look for these two options. Stay and work together, separate, but continue the work. And avoid the third option of trying to stay together and stay in perpetual conflict because anything that undermines the mission of God and the work of God is not what God desires to have as an ultimate conclusion. Well, a fourth strategy is to accept mixed outcomes. I've already hinted at this. When you've reached an effective, appropriate conflict resolution, some people will be happy and some may not be very happy. Some people will leave and some people will stay. And, quite frankly, some collateral damage is inevitable. Uh, When two church leaders have a conflict and other people see this, even though the church leaders may get it worked out, the people who've seen it will be impacted. Their confidence in leadership is diminished. Their their willingness to follow in the next big project may be lessened. Uh, There's always these inevitable consequences. You can't manage all of them, and you certainly can't make them go away. But what you can do is show people that while conflict did happen and the consequences are inevitable, resolution also happened, and that ought to be as widely uh, known as the conflict was known so that people can recover uh, some sense, at least, of their confidence in the people who've been involved in the conflict. And I would just add that leaders who can't accept these mixed outcomes are doomed to a perpetual sense of failure. In my early pastoral years, I was so frustrated by conflict because I would do all I could to resolve it. And even when it was resolved, I was not satisfied because the inevitable uh, 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 collateral damage was always present. And I always wondered, what am I doing wrong? And then I finally, over years of Bible study and experience, realized I, well, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I, I, simply, I simply had reached a point where I had to understand that I had to accept mixed results and understand that sometimes those are the best results that I'm ever going to be able to achieve. Before I was able to accept that, I was doomed to perpetual frustration, and I was frustrated in almost every conflict resolution situation. Now, while I'm still sometimes saddened by how things turn out, I recognize that when I've done all I can do, and when the conflict has been resolved as best it can, that the outcomes are going to be mixed, and I have to accept those and then take the, do the last strategy. And that is, the last strategy is move on. Accept less than perfect outcomes. Recognize that you've reached the best outcome you're going to reach. Not the perfect outcome, but the best one you're going to reach. Resolution has come. That's all you can do. And now it's time to move on. And once that happens, stop revisiting the conflict and allow it to fade. In other words, three months after the conflict, ends. Don't bring it up as a sermon illustration and talk about conflict all over again. Don't do anything to pull the scab off a healed up conflict. Let it pass. Let it fade. Let it move into the oblivion of the past and not be brought back into the present on a regular basis. 
And then shift your focus as quickly as possible from conflict resolution back to really accomplishing the mission God has given you. You know, the ultimate goal that God has given us is not, is not conflict resolution. That's not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is kingdom expansion. And so we only work on conflict resolution as it facilitates expanding God's kingdom, preaching the gospel, starting churches, strengthening churches, making disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so conflict resolution is not our mission. Uh, it's only a step toward being able to accomplish our mission more effectively. So as soon as you can, get your attention off resolving conflict and back onto your mission. Well, here are these strategies that you can use to manage church conflict more effectively. Anticipate conflict, teach about it, and prepare people for it. Address conflict intentionally. Take these steps of action I've described to be proactive in how you deal with conflict. Resolve conflict appropriately, recognizing that conflict resolution does not always work out perfectly as you might hope. But resolve your conflict appropriately, meaning you reach the best conclusion possible. Not the best conclusion that could have been possible, but you reach the best conclusion that is possible. And then, as a part of that, you're most likely going to have to accept mixed outcomes, recognizing that not everyone is always happy, not everyone always stays, not everyone feels that the resolution was as good as it could have been. But when you're satisfied that it is, accept those mixed outcomes and finally move on. You are not called to perpetual conflict resolution. You're called to expand God's kingdom. Start churches, strengthen churches, make disciples, share the gospel. Do the work that God has given us to expand his kingdom and make that your primary focus. Well, church conflict happens. We need to be good at managing it. Hopefully, this podcast will give you some tools to do that more effectively.